if you hire somebody in those early days, there's so much time and effort that goes into kind of getting that person up to speed that if you if you have to let them go because they're not working out, it's 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 you're worse off than if you had you not hired anybody. Welcome everyone to Uptech Report. This is our Founders Journey series. I'm excited to be joined by Daniel Cunningham uh, from based in Redondo Beach, California. He's the CEO of Leonardo 24-7. And this is part two of our discussion. Uh, you should go back and check part one to hear more about their product. It's an integrated workplace management system. Uh, almost a whole new category that, that you've built in an area which has its challenges in itself. So I'm excited to dig into your story. Um, this, let's start um, by maybe looking even before uh, Leonardo, you, you built Leonardo, before eight, nine years ago. How did you get to where you are today? So um, I, I personally, and I think this can be pro is probably can be said of many entrepreneurs, I've always um, been a problem solver. I've always been seeking ways to do something a little bit better. Uh, I remember the very first job, uh, so I don't tell the story very often, but, but my very first job out of college, I'm an engineer, so I'm a civil engineer by education. And um, my very first job out of college, I was working for a construction company in the Bay Area and uh, heavy industrial construction company. And our very first job was, uh, we were installing these, these giant uh, heat exchange bundles in a, in a, um, in a power plant of Northern California. And the, these bundles were flown in from Germany and they flew a, uh, a guy over who was, who was an expert in how to install them. And he said, you have to, you have to account because these are so unwieldy. There were 20 tons each and you had to shove them into these, 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 uh, these heat wells, these heat exchanger wells. And he's like, this is going to take a couple, couple, three days to get each one of these positioned and, and put in place. So budget for that. And, um, and I was put in charge of figuring out how to do that. And I invented a method. Um, which was really simple, but I invented a method to sort of uh, put some metal plates on the floor and some pins in there such that we could just kind of slam these, these, these bundles into these pins and immediately get them aligned and shove them in. And what, what he was saying would take three days, took, um, a, took about three hours each. So I saved the company a bunch of money and, and the guy from Germany was like, this is how we're going to do this forever. And, uh, and, I, and I remember afterwards, the, the reward that I got for being innovative and coming up with that was nothing. It was absolutely nothing. And um, congratulations. Yeah. And I think that that flipped a switch inside of me. It was like, look, if I'm going to come up with clever things that make somebody's life easier, it sure would be nice to be the recipient of the accolades from that, whether they be personal or financial. And I think that sort of set me on my journey. And this is the company Leonardo is, um, uh, the fourth company that I've started, a uh, third company, uh, last company I started living homes was a Vinod Kozla funded uh, uh, company that was building prefab modern green homes. They're still around. They've, they're now a company called plant prefab, which was the very first uh, Alexa funded uh, company. So uh, yeah, so that's sort of, that's, that's my before Leo. Um, but what actually, uh, what actually led to the creation of Leonardo 24 seven was I was, I was working for a uh, developer here in Los Angeles. And I told the story in the last segment. And it was okay if I recap it a little bit. People watching yeah. the other one. Yeah, and for those that didn't catch the first one, yeah. Okay. Uh, so I was, I was working for a, uh, a developer here in Los Angeles and I had started a property management company for them. 
and we had a, a high rise building in downtown Los Angeles that lost uh, hot water to the entire building, 322 units. And it was a very expensive event because we had, first of all, we gave rent credits to everybody, but then we had to ha have a boiler um, manufactured and expedited helicopter to the roof. And, um, and the owner called me in his office and said, look, how did this happen? And, um, you know, it turns out that the boiler hadn't been maintained. The, the ceramics on the inside had a crack in them and the, the fire had actually literally melted the exterior of the boiler. And, and um, at that moment, what I realized was, look, our, we rely on our vendors to, to, to do their jobs. We don't really know what they should be doing. And so uh, we wanted to make sure everybody in the, in the organization was aware of this thing. Like, hey, you need to make sure going forward that the, the vendors check the, the ceramics on the inside of the boiler. But there, there was a whole... There were a whole slew of things of best practices that we really didn't have much confidence were really uh, were, were were happening because, you know, we had a we we had some best practices that were that were expressed. We really were relying on the community managers and service managers to kind of be know-it-alls and, and and remember it all. And nobody can be an expert in all of the different things that are wrapped into property management. So um, it started me on a on a process of saying, well, first I need to. I need to figure out what all of these things should be. I need to gather together the daily, weekly, monthly things that are critical to being a good asset manager, a good steward of the asset. Um, these were all like proactive things. You know, we, we, we kind of already, we had accounting platforms that could manage the leasing and the resident cycle, but there was nothing really to manage the asset cycle. And so uh, initially I thought I would write a book out of that. And I did write a book, but but what I realized before we went out and started marketing the book, and I think wisely, because I don't, I'm not sure that would have been um, a, a, a New York Times bestseller, uh, operator property. Um, yeah. Uh, what was realized was that what we had, what, we, what I had done was I had put together a process that could be very easily translated into the software. So that was the birth of, of Leonardo 24 seven as a way to, um, to, to capture that institutional knowledge so that, um, you wouldn't have a boilers breaking down again because everybody would know how to maintain a boiler because Leonardo would be giving that guidance based on a property's um, unique amenity and equipment profile, geographic profile where they're located. Leonardo instantly generates a year's worth of daily guidance that covers preventative maintenance and risk management and marketing and leasing and, and a bunch of things that, that uh, community managers, you kind of assume that they're doing, but most, many of them don't know to do it. Um, and, and this, this provides consistency, accountability, um, and transparency, because now there's, you can, you, it's very clear what the expectations are for those folks on site, which they, which is good for them. Um, and as they're doing these things and completing it, you have, you have regional managers and, and executives in the company or owners that can see that that's what's happening and that takes it off their plate. So now they're no longer worrying, worrying about the minutia. Uh, we're, we're handling that for them. We're, we're giving, we're telling the inspections to do or the, the, the process they need to follow or the workflow that they need. Um, and so we've got that. We'll let you know when you have a problem. And now those conversations at, at the executive level can focus on things that make them money, like, like rent and marketing and leasing and that sort of thing. So th there's two things that comes to me when I hear this the now second, third time actually hearing this story. Uh, first, you're really good at telling a story 
And, and that tells me the importance as the CEO and the founder to know your story, the founding of it and, and why you exist and be able to tell that really well every time, anywhere. That makes a big difference, I imagine, in both being able to grow the company, get the right team members, maybe funding and customers and clients. I don't know if, if that resonates with you. Like you just know your core story to a T. Well, I think, I think one of the differences between a founder-led company and uh, one that has a, you know, a CEO for hire is I think founder-led companies, um, they come baked in with a passion for the solution. Um, and I think that's what you're getting from me, you know, uh, is um, I know this problem in my bones. I mean, I have lived it. And that uh, for sure in the early days, uh, when we needed to sell people on the idea that this little baby company who had no clients and no track record, um, that we need to sell the idea that we knew what we were doing. Coming across as I've been there, um, I've, I have suffered through these same problems. I know exactly what you need. And let me tell you how we solve that. Without a doubt, that resonates. And it's not scalable. I mean, I can't, I can't sell to everybody. So the interesting thing is, how do you get that same, how do you translate that same passion and that story then to others who come on the team and want to sell for you? And um, it's not eerie, uh, but it is interesting to hear my words or my story coming out of the mouths of the sales team sometimes, um, because it is the most effective way to talk about the product. I mean, talking about what I went through and uh, how we got to this point is the best way to let the person on the other side of the table know that, that we're a partner. We can be a partner because we understand where they're coming from. But, uh, but yeah, uh, trying to translate that same passion is, uh, I think, job other, number one. Uh, uh, a challenge. The, the second piece that pops in my head is just, again, hearing the concept of your product uh, is a perfect use case of, of technology itself. Or, or when I started the series, uh, digging into, okay, what is AI? Uh, we, we have this vision of, of you know, talking robots, but um, I mean, uh, um, using a computer, uh, artificial brain to, to remember things and tell people what to do. It, this is just a perfect use case, I feel, for technology to solve a problem, a real world problem that makes everyone's life easier and happier uh, and less problems uh, arise. Um, digging in though, when you uh, decided to to start this. Did you bootstrap this, knowing this is your your third venture? So you bootstrapped at the beginning. Did you ever get funding for this? Wow, I mean, really interesting uh, question because it, it is um, it is a real dilemma. It's a real dilemma um, how you start a company like this. Um, and there's there's a number of routes you can go. But if you if you're if you're so first, I'll answer your question, which is. Uh, we bootstrapped the company. Um, we just recently, so this, we, we founded the company. I founded the company in 2011 with a co-founder um, and uh, we operated for uh, five years completely with, with no outside capital. Um, and then we had an angel investor who came in in 2016 and sort of seeded. Uh, we already had the product was built and was, was being used to beta front. He seeded the, um, the product that we have today. And we operated that way for a while. We had, we had a client come to us and invest at some point. Uh, so we took a little bit of money from them. But we've, we took our first institutional money uh, from a private growth private equity firm uh, just a few months ago. Um, and now looking backwards with the benefit of hindsight, that was the right journey for us. Um, we saw others who were kind of in our space take a big 
take a big chunk of cash up front and really burn through it without really nailing the product. And, and they fizzled out. Um, we, we took our time to sort of learn, you know, launch the product, get some clients who were willing to have faith in us and give it a shot, learn from them, reiterate, come back with changes. Um, and, and it really took the product in, a, I think, a different direction uh, than, than in some cases where we thought it would go. And we would have spent a lot of money selling that first product or trying to sell that first product. And so um, also from, from a founder standpoint, it, it, it helps a lot with dilution. If you can build up a significant revenue stream before you go out and try to raise money. And, um, and I, so I think personally that's been a benefit to me, but it is the, it is for sure the harder route to take. Um, you know, I have the classic moment where we needed to redevelop the software and, you know, I had to, you know, cash in the 401k and, you know, to help pay for, um, Fine. yeah. So, um, so that's kind of what you're in for. Um, uh, so I can't, I can't say that it's the right path to take for everybody, uh, but I think if you can bootstrap for a while, um, I think ultimately you end up in a better place, but I think you're at a lot more risk than you do that because, um, you know, when you, when you don't have money to, to really throw at development, when you don't have money to hire, you know, experienced, um, uh, you know, prolific salespeople, um, it, 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 you're at risk of making a mistake or of a competitor coming in and beating you to market. Um, and so I can't always say it's the right decision. Um, but I think if, if, when you're, when you're in a, in a situation like we are, where you're trying to sort of forge a new path with a new product and, um, you know, kind of its own product category, you, it's going to take a lot longer. And you're, I think you're, in that case, you're better off to try to make your way as long as you can until you've got it nailed down, until the message is right, until the solution set is right, um, and, and, and then look to raise money. Having the right team to be able to accomplish the growth uh, is, is, is crucial. It's important, but I know how unique challenges there if you're bootstrapping and every hire matters. You, you can't just say, oh, let's hire this person. Oh, that doesn't work out. Let's hire that person. What would you say uh, in your experience is, is some of the, the common mistakes one could make when it comes to hiring? Well, you need to, you need to, uh, you need to hire very slowly and you need to fire very quickly. And that is painful when you're small because if you hire somebody in those early days, there's so much time and effort that goes into kind of getting that person up to speed that if you, if you have to let them go because they're not working out, it's, 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 you're worse off than if you, had you not hired anybody because now you've wasted a lot of time with them. You've taken your own energy that could have been directed at sales, for example, and you've, you put it in somebody else. So, um, uh, those early hires, you, you need to find a way to have a break-in period. Um, you, you absolutely, you're giving them equity because you're probably not paying them market. Um, make sure that that equity is contingent on uh, that there's a, there's a cliff initially that, that you've got some time to work with them before you're actually giving out uh, your precious equity. Um, and, and try to really get to know them, spend time talking to references, other people that have worked with them, those early, our first, our first um, hire actually was a woman named Suellen McFarling. And, um, 
and Sue Ellen was uh, is a rock star, and she made a massive amount of difference in the company. Um, there were people that we had brought on um, on a sort of a contingent basis prior to her that um, could even hold a candle to her, but we thought they were good. And to see once we had Swellen on board in comparison to the other folks that we had been able to attract beforehand was like night and day. And it was like, wow, did we dodge a bullet not marrying ourselves to uh, you know, some of those other candidates that we were working with. So, so take your time, vet as much as you can, and um, be wary of, of bringing friends and family into the, into the day-to-day operations seat because uh, uh, it is hard. The, yeah, it, you are slugging it out in the early days and, and there are hard conversations that need to be had that, that friendships sometimes don't survive. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. I imagine as the team grows and there's new challenges arise and um, the culture, managing the culture, and you're definitely, you're, uh, uh, well, everyone is kind of distributed right now, but by, not by choice, but you are. Um, how big is the team today? There's 26 that are here in the U.S. Um, part of part of the uh, part of an outgrowth of being a, a, a bootstrapped company is I outsourced a lot of a, anything that could be done less expensively that wasn't core to the company. I really outsourced it. So we have we have another 20 some consultants that are offshore. Um, you know we have. Um, you know, basic password reset kind of level one QA is done out of the Philippines. We have QA that's done um, out of Serbia. Our development is, is um, mostly offshore, but a team I've worked with for, for seven years now. So, you know, they're, they're a really good team and, and, and a true partner of ours. Um, uh, so, so, you, so I think that we probably wouldn't have survived had we had to hire everybody here locally. We just, just wouldn't, didn't have the money to do it. So it, it, uh, now it seems like, uh, you know, we look brilliant because remote work is and a distributed workforce now is kind of the, uh, the parlance du jour, but we've been, we've been that way from the beginning. And even when we hired people, um, here in the States, it, my attitude was still, um, let, let's find the best person I could possibly get wherever they are. Um, and so we, we were still distributed from the very beginning here, um, as a company and, uh, it has its it has its limitations for sure. I think the benefits are fairly well known. You know, you people work from home; they have flexibility. They really appreciate that. Uh, they, uh, uh, I think, I think you get more out of people's day sometimes, even though you know during the day there might be times when they're dealing with personal issues. Um, I, I, if you have if if you hire people that have um, real integrity, they're they're giving you that time back and more. So um, I think all that is good. Uh, there is, without a doubt, some, you, you lose a little bit of the serendipity, right? This is kind of the serendipitous interactions that happens in the office. And that there are certain departments that benefit from that. Our account management team and our implementation team would probably benefit from seeing each other more because they're talking about solving client problems and how each of them is doing that. And, uh, you know, we need to find a way to, to facilitate those kinds of interactions in a virtual environment. Having the, the right team is kind of that, that, that foundation that you can build upon when it comes to then marketing and, and getting eyeballs, awareness. That's, that's a whole nother challenge. And, and I, I feel like moving into a whole new uh, market where people don't uh, – 
a new product offering and a new market that people are like, I didn't even know this something like this existed, has very unique challenges that other entrepreneurs uh, can appreciate. So what would you say is uh, your biggest takeaway or learning from, from this whole endeavor, um, realizing how do you get people to both know you exist and that you, this is worth looking at and then buying your, your service? Well, marketing is a real luxury that I think, I think bootstrap companies don't have early on. Um, and we did very little of it, uh, to be honest. And our, our, uh, so our initial traction came from our, our own Rolodex of uh, people we could get to in the industry. And then we hired, you know, our first salesperson, we hired somebody who came in with a role who had been selling in the, into the industry and had a Rolodex. They could immediately reach out and talk to people. Um, marketing can, can get very expensive very quickly. And if you're trying in a, and by the way, this is, this is a B2C scenario or sorry, B2B scenario, a B2C scenario, I think is different. Um, I think you, you can't do that. You can't succeed in a B2C without marketing. But in the B2B scenario, um, the important thing is to get some wins on the board early on. And that's a named account kind of approach where you know the top 100 um, you know, potential targets in the industry and you just go after them and you try to get in front of them. So um, even today, I think we don't have great broad brand recognition. And that's part of that actually is one of the main reasons that we raised money was to be able to now actually put together a well-funded, thoughtful marketing campaign and go out and try to, to spread the word about what we do. But up until now, it's been very much kind of this named account approach where our salespeople are picking up the phone and saying, Hey, I want to, I, I know, I want to tell you about this great solution. Um, but the other part of your question though, um, is, is, significant, which is once you're in front of those folks and you've convinced them that you're solving a problem, uh, one of the hard lessons that we learned is that you cannot, um, at least with our kind of solution, you can't, you can't just turn over the software, the technology to them and say, you know, congratulations, we're done here. You're all good. Um, because you need, you, you need adoption early on and adoption is the biggest challenge. I, the most wonderful solution in the world um, is going to receive some amount of pushback because change is hard for everybody. Change is difficult. Um, and uh, so you, you need to, uh, and what we had to do is develop a, a real partnership um, a, to, to, to sort of get, get the product over the hump where you're really working with them to uh, train people, to get buy-in from senior executives who are then communicating the message, the why of the reason they've, they've adopted Leon 24 seven and make sure that that is spread far and wide. I mean, early on, we, we would, we would sell this and somebody would uh, just send an email one day saying, Hey, Leon 24 seven is on your desktop. Now use it. And, and, and that was just not, um, I mean, hindsight seems ridiculous. Um, but that's how, you know, that's how, uh, unsophisticated buyers will, will use the product if they're, if they're not a sophisticated technology buyer. So we really had to put together a thoughtful onboarding plan that, that went from the started with the senior executives and their messaging, and then found a way to, to communicate that all the way down through the users in the field. Uh, and um, if you don't do that, if you don't get buying, you're going to get churned. We have, we have less than um, 5% churn uh, right now. And that's because, I think um, is testament to the work we do upfront 
to make sure that everyone understands why Leo is, is there and, and the benefit that, that we provide. You just packed a lot of insight in, in, in one answer. <laughs> I appreciate that, that breakdown. Looking forward into, 20, into the next year, 2021, as of the recording of, of our interview today, what do you see as the biggest challenge that you're going to need to overcome to continue to grow? And you're, I think you already alluded to it, but I'd love to just kind of share a little bit into that. Yeah, well, it's easy right now to point to to COVID. That's obviously uh, paralyzed a number of of clients um, and in companies in our industry that just you know they can't sign contracts right now. But 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 that one I think will is hopefully is 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 passing us um, shortly. But yeah, I think uh, our, the number one challenge for us is to uh, is to educate the industry on what it is that we do. Is this this is a new product category? You know, we're similar to an integrated workplace management system, but it's, it's really more than that. You know, the risk components that we bring in, um, you know, the, the, the municipal codes that we, that we bring in uh, and automatically push out to people. Like there's not, really, um, there's not really a nice, clean description that we can give of that. So we have to do some, some education with folks in the industry and talk to them about what we do, the problems that we solve. Um, and, and doing that quickly um, so that we really establish ourselves as these, uh, the other must-have operating system. Uh, you know, clearly, I think, clearly we're the market leader in this. Uh, we have the most exhaustive uh, solution set that addresses these issues. So I think so that, that part has been mission accomplished. Um, we just need to do a great marketing job to get it in front of as many people as possible over the next 12 months. And then I think you're going to see, uh, you know, kind of this uh, critical mass uh, of awareness sort of shift. Uh, we have a partnership, well, sort of shift so that it, it now becomes like, oh yeah, of course we need to do, we need to mitigate operational risk. We need an integrated workforce management system. Or we need, you know, an intelligent property operation system, a couple of the uh, monikers that we've used. Um, and I think what's going to help us with that is, um, uh, we have a version of Leonardo 24-7 that's white-labeled by the National Apartment Association, and that's, that's a real partnership with them. We work closely with them every day on the click and comply version, which, is, which, which contains best practices that the NAA has established, which is what they're really known for. Um, and so the NAA clients using the click and comply version, they get the benefit of, of that additional uh, guidance that comes out of click and comply. And I think between the two of us, the two, those two efforts, um, I, think, I think 2021 is going to be a year people uh, start to understand that we can, there is finally a solution to this problem. Last two questions for you, Daniel. Uh, for you as a leader, are there any books, audiobooks, podcasts that you are currently reading or have read in the past that you would recommend? Well, we operate the company according to a book by Gino, Rick, Gino Wickman called Traction. And in, in the book Traction, he describes the, the entrepreneur's operating system. And um, I was, uh, when I was introduced to it, I was skeptical about it. Um, I'm not, you know, it, and I think, again, I think many entrepreneurs are not necessarily like regimented goal setters. We tend to be visionary, big idea. Uh, we can be very scattered about that. And we, we live in chaos and we kind of like it that way. But it's not a great way to scale a company. Um, you know, once you've established the product, um, you need a, you need process uh, to make sure all the oars are being pulled in the same direction, and um, and that book traction and the, the EOS system uh, gave us a methodology that we're following now 
for setting goals, um, revisiting those goals on a regular basis and holding people accountable. So um, I think any, uh, any young entrepreneur who's starting out uh, should, should look at that book. Um, Do you find your integrator? Are you the visionary? I've had, I, yeah, no, I, I yeah. Oh, so you read the book clearly. Um, you know, I hold both of those roles. I hold both of those roles. Roles. We're, we're seeking the integrator now that we, okay. that we, that we can actually pay an integrator what they're worth. Um, uh, and outside of that, you know, I like Scott Galloway. I get a real kick out of him. Uh, he has a couple podcasts, but professor G podcast, um, he touches. So he's, he's, a uh, he's at NYU, I think, uh, as a professor of marketing at NYU. Um, and there's in his podcast, first of all, he's a funny guy. Uh, he's got a very dry sense of humor, but, but his podcasts touch on, uh, there's always something to learn regarding business or marketing in those podcasts, sometimes politics. Um, so he's entertaining. And I, I, you know, in the limited amount of time I have to listen to something, uh, I like to, I like the tournament. And, and I'll, uh, here's the slightly geeky side of me. I've been a listener to the Tech Guy podcast. Uh, for for long long time, uh, so I listen to that on the weekends. Usually while I'm running, <laughs> not motivational music. I listen to the Tech Guy podcast while I go for podcast. I like that. All right. So uh, last question for you: What kind of tech innovations from your side do you predict we'll see in the near term, next year, and long term, five ten years from now? COVID has 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 pushed forward in time a technology that I think has been coming for a while. And, and maybe has even done so before it's really ready. But that is uh, this idea that, uh, that it is possible to lease units and lease apartments without a human being involved. Um, leasing agents are you know, a real core of this industry. And the idea that they could, I don't wanna say be replaced, but be augmented perhaps, or uh, um, nobody really wanna talk about that. But now, you know, there, there, there are chatbots that are handling incoming calls and are handling a lot of the basic information that needs to be given out regarding leasing. There's virtual leasing that's happening now. There's, there's some people talk, they're doing uh, augmented reality leasing where people are, can walk through the, the apartments on their own and th- an augmented person can be there, could have sort of given advice because of, because of obviously for, for COVID reasons. Um, but it's proving a point, I think, that that I think is going to become more acute as the year, as 2021, as we get into 2021, which is AI and, and uh, automated chatbots are going to play, can play a larger role on the marketing side and the leasing side. Um, and there are even some, there's even some evidence that potential prospects may prefer it um, than, than the awkwardness of being escorted by a, a leasing agent. Uh, I'm not sure that that owner and operator is going to buy into that. I think I think that the perception is going to be that having somebody there, you know, answering objections real time is always going to be the better route. And that might be true, but I think for sure we have to recognize that the automated, self-guided tour is a legit option, uh, and and should be part of any uh, leasing strategy. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for, for sharing your insight over these years. There's a lot packed in there, uh, as well as uh, kind of your prediction of where we're going in the future. I appreciate it, Daniel, a lot. Yeah, you, you know everything I know now. That's it. 
know it all. Now, definitely, if for those who want to learn more, you can go to Leonardo247.com. Also, listen to part one of our intro to hear understand their, their platform product a little bit deeper. Again, this was our founder's journey of Uptech Report. Our sponsor for today's episode is TearLeap. If your company wants to find out how to better leverage the power of video to increase your sales and marketing results, head over to terraleague.io and learn more about their product customer stories. Thanks so much, and we'll see you guys next time. That concludes the audio version of this episode. To see the original and more, visit our Uptech Report YouTube channel. If you know a tech company we should interview, you can nominate them at uptechreport.com. Or if you just prefer to listen, make sure you're subscribed to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. Mm-hmm.